morning. I want to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our series on the keys to the kingdom, the parables of Jesus. Matthew 19 verses 27 to chapter 20 verse 16. Let's again come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that, uh, Lord, it would be a a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, and that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts this morning, that this wouldn't be, uh, these wouldn't be my words, but your word that speaks to us by your spirit. So, Father, uh, I pray that you would illuminate uh, the truth of your word, help us to uh, be maybe convicted of those things that we need to be convicted about, encouraged by those things that we need to be encouraged about, and that we might grow more and more into the image of Christ, transformed as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. And we just commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. At a uh, military academy, it was the tradition at formal dinners to have a host at each of the tables to receive the food, pass it around the table, and serve himself last after everyone else has uh, been served. But one host found a way to basically ensure that he got the biggest piece of dessert. Before passing the tray to others, he would lick his finger, he would stick it right smack dab in the middle of the biggest piece and announce to everyone around the table, this one's mine, this one's mine. And of course when the dessert tray was passed, obviously nobody wanted that piece of cake with that host of the table's finger print right smack dab in the middle. But then one day the cadets decided to gang up on the table host The table host again licked his finger, stuck it in the middle of the biggest piece of pie or cake, and said, this one's mine, this one's mine. As the dessert tray was being passed around with the host's finger mark smack dab in the middle of that cake, each student around that table announced loudly, this one's his, this one's his. They licked their finger and stuck it in the same piece of cake. There's something about our old sin nature that loves to be first and have the best of everything. You might remember the story of the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus, but he refused to release his iron grip on money and possessions. And Jesus graciously invited him in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, to go and sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But tragically, he walked away from Jesus because his love for stuff was more important to him than his love for the Savior. Well, we pick up our study here this morning in chapter 27, when, or, or verse 27, where Peter is quick to distinguish himself from that rich young ruler and to point out his own personal sacrifice. After all, while that young ruler uh, refused to leave his possessions, Peter and the other disciples had left theirs, everything. They left family and friends and vocation and money and, and all of that to follow Jesus. And, And so in verse 27, uh, Peter asks the Lord, Behold, we have left everything. We have followed you. What then will there be for us? In other words, what's in it for us? Uh, What are we getting out of this deal? (laughs) We've left everything. Peter here figures uh, that God is going to reward them since they were not trusting in their wealth and they were following Jesus. They were all in. And the Lord assures him there that they will get rewards in the future kingdom. Follow with me here in verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me, 
In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my, for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Basically, there are three things that Jesus wants his disciples to understand and know about their future heavenly rewards. The first thing is that the twelve tri or the twelve disciples will be sitting on twelve thrones and judging the nation of Israel. Now, when is that going to happen? Well, Jesus uses that uh, phrase, in the regeneration, which is another way of saying in the age to come. It'll be that millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year reign of Christ that follows the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that it would be during this time that the earth will basically undergo an overhaul. It'll undergo a restoration. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it tells us that that future restoration on earth will include a spiritual renewal, a geographical renewal, a physical renewal, and a political renewal. Planet Earth is going to go through a major redo. <laughs> It'll be rebooted on every single level. And so we discover here that the new messianic kingdom someday will be a political kingdom. Jesus explains here that while he will be sitting on his glorious throne at the right hand of God the Father, uh, he will have a very special place of authority for those 12 disciples, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of us, each and every one of us as his disciples, someday will have a place of authority. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of us, every single one of us, we're not going to be some disembodied spirit someday floating around on clouds playing the harp. The Bible talks about us having real jobs, real responsibilities in heaven, which will be a part of ruling with Christ. When Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, 6 tells us that we will be seated with him, there's some kind of an authority given to each and every one of us. Whenever the Bible talks about crowns, crowns are a symbol of authority. And every one of us is going to receive a crown, some kind of place of authority. Now, who does uh, God say will reign? Well, the book of Revelation tells us that it will be God's people that will reign from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every one of God's people. Where will they reign? On earth. Again, it won't be some intangible heavenly realm that we will be ruling. It'll be a tangible, physical place, just like this. We'll have bodies, glorified bodies, but they will, be, they will be physical, and we'll be on a physical earth someday. Which means on this new earth, you may be a mayor of a city. You might be a governor of a province. You might be a president of a country. Who knows? Or like me, you might hope to be fortunate enough to be able to serve on a local communication or community association committee. I don't know. But it might be a surprise to you to learn that the government of the new earth won't be a democracy. It won't be based upon majority rule. It won't be based upon public opinion. In fact, the very best form of government, today it's a democracy, but really the purest form and the best form of, of, of government is a pure theocracy where God rules. And that's going to be the case someday on the new earth. And so in that new heavenly realm on earth, we will be appointed uh, roles and responsibilities that we're going to be passionate about. We're going to, it'll be perfectly uh, something that suits you and, and provides for the whole. In other words, everyone will have a meaningful and significant job 
that they will do that will both meet and fulfill your biggest need and your greatest joy. Looking forward to that. We will be a part of God's family, and ruling the universe is the family business. But the authority you someday will receive will be based upon and directly related to basically what you did here on earth in this life, in this boot camp, so to speak, in preparation for that. It's related to how we live our lives today. Now, the second thing that Jesus wants us to know from this parable is that any sacrifice that you make here on earth will be richly rewarded in heaven. Verse 29, And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. In other words, there's going to be a payday someday. <laughs> Praise God for that, including, of course, eternal life. And so whatever you've given up in this life, or, uh, whoever you've served in this life, uh, however you've suffered for the name of Christ, uh, Jesus wants us to rest assured we will be rewarded in the life to come. Now the third thing that Jesus wants us to know from this parable about heavenly rewards is interesting. Number three is that rewards will be distributed in just the opposite of what you might expect. Verse 30 says, But many who are first will be last and the last first. What does that mean? Well, Jesus goes on to explain it with a parable. And it really, more probably than any other parable in the, in the Gospels, illustrates God's grace more than anywhere else. Follow with me here. Chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus states, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others uh, standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. Again, if this parable tells us anything, it tells us that God's rewards will be distributed in exactly the opposite way that you and I might expect. Let's review the parable, maybe with a helpful chart. There were those who were hired by the landowner early in the morning. They were promised one denarius, and they worked about 10 or 12 hours. Then there were those that were hired about the third hour. That's about 9 a.m. in the morning. They were promised whatever is right I will give you and they worked probably nine hours. Those hired at noon worked about six hours. 
Those hired at 3 p.m. in the afternoon worked about three hours, and those at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., they weren't really promised anything at that point. They didn't know what to expect, and they only worked about an hour. Now, when it came at the end of the day, 6 p.m. payday, or the paid period, uh, basically the landowner paid his owners. He began with those who had been working the shortest amount of time. Now get this, each one of those people, each one of those laborers were paid the same. One denarius. You know this parable, i got to be honest, it, it, it offends my sense of fairness. <laughs> I mean, why should everyone get equal pay for unequal work? That doesn't seem to, to be fair or make sense. And I have, to be I have to confess that at times I'm offended by God's grace. I don't get it. In my own estimation, God, God's grace here just, just seems unfair. And evidently, from this parable, I'm not the only one that feels that way. In fact, there are three perspectives from our parable here. I want, you to, point, I want to point out to you. The first is the perspective of those who were paid first. They are surprised by joy. They're overwhelmed. They've only worked one hour, and they get a full day's pay. And basically, they had been standing around, I guess, most of the day doing absolutely nothing. They had only worked for a few hours or one hour, and they had no idea that they, what they were going to get at the end of the day. And so they're surprised by joy and the generosity of the landowner who would give them a full day's uh, pay for one, one hour. There's no doubt that they're overwhelmed. And I think they would probably, uh, nothing, you know, they, there's nothing they wouldn't do for him. In fact, my guess is that they were kicking themselves for putting off working in the vineyard uh, that day to begin with. The second perspective here is that of those who were paid last. And, and their attitude was, hey, what's the deal? Uh, this isn't right. We're getting ripped off. Now, again, keep in mind, these are the people that were hired first. They were working 8, 10, or 12 hours. They get the same pay as the guy that worked an hour. What's the deal here? They worked longer, they sweated the most, <laughs> and they were, had to stand in line the longest at the end of the day to get their pay. And when they finally get paid, they respond with, what's the deal? Uh, they get exactly what they're promised, but they grumble about it. They don't like it. Why? Because they're playing the comparison game. Look at what this other guy got. It isn't fair. Again, I got ripped off here. And while they had been paid what they were promised, they protest. Why? Because others had been dealt with more generously. You know, the comparison game is a game that's no fun to play. You will always lose. <laughs> always. There are times the hardest, th the hardest thing sometimes for me to do is to be content when the guy next to me has more. He has a newer car. He has a, a nicer house. He has a bigger church. Sometimes it's hard to be happy for the other guy. But our complaint, just like these laborers, really does reveal our character. No matter what some are so generously given, they'll always complain. Truth be told, we're all a little bit like that, aren't we? You might have heard about the three senior golfers, these three old guys that would always golf every other day uh, during the week, but they'd always complain as they, as they golfed. The fairways are too long, grumbled one. The hills are too high, grumbled another. The bunkers are too deep, complained a third. And then finally, the oldest one, about 85 years old, put it all into perspective. He said, listen, guys, <laughs> At least we're on the right side of the grass. That's putting things into perspective. 
Then there are the three guys I, I heard about that were visiting and doing the Grand Canyon one day. They were standing on the edge of this massive abyss. If you've ever been there, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's overwhelming. Each one of these three guys, one was an artist, one was a pastor, one was a cowboy. They were overwhelmed, and they all just basically responded with a cry of exclamation. The artist said, wow, what a beautiful scene to paint. The pastor said, hallelujah, what a wonderful uh, example of God's handiwork. But the cowboy complained and said, what a terrible place to lose a cow. It all depends upon our perspective, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what these complaining laborers had lost. They had lost their perspective. In fact, the fact that any of these workers had a job to begin with was, an evident, was so evident of grace. And so they really had nothing to complain about. But why do we complain? The third perspective is that of the landowner. Amazing grace. In fact, we discover four major attributes, characteristics of the landowner that really reflect the nature of God. First of all, he is enthusiastic about recruiting laborers for his harvest. He's enthusiastic about it. He's serious about getting his crop in. And he's absolutely fair with those he hires. He pays what he says he's going to pay. And he's tactful when unjustly accused. Basically, you'll notice here that he calls his accusers friend. It's the same uh, word that Jesus uses of Judas later on. But the most outstanding characteristic, basically, of this landowner is his amazing grace. He wants so many to have such a rich reward, and he delights in surprising people. The landowner is a beautiful picture of the God that we serve. We serve a wonderful, mighty, majestic, awesome God, worthy to be praised. He is so good all the time. James 1.17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. In other words, God never ceases to be an abundantly gracious and good God. Now remember, what, what prompted the telling of this parable? Uh, Peter here had bragged that he and the other disciples had basically given everything. They were all in to follow Jesus. He wanted to know what was in it for them. What are they going to get out of this deal? Now, his question obviously reveals a wrong motive. He was serving Christ for what he could get, not out of a sense of loyalty or, or love for the Savior. And so while Jesus does promise rewards, he shows us here a different standard of distribution. He, he's teaching here that the, the, the manner of rewards is under the sovereign control of God. God is the one before whom all accounts will be settled. Why? Because he's God. He's the landowner. And so Jesus points out here that there will be some who have had prominent places who will someday find themselves demoted. There are others who find themselves at the end of the line who will find themselves promoted to the front of the line. The first will be last, and the last will be first. In the final accounting, it is the Lord's analysis that will carry the greatest and really the only important weight. Now, there have been some who have misread this parable to mean something it, it never was intended to mean. There are two things that this parable is not teaching. Uh, first of all, we have to understand that this parable is about service, not salvation. The denarius here does not represent salvation. It does not re represent eternal life. If it did, then salvation could be earned, and we know that that is impossible. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. 
We get it the same way the grateful and the grumblers get it, all by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Nobody's going to be able to stand before God and boast or brag about, hey, I got here because I was such a swell guy. I did all these wonderful things. Look what I gave. Look what I did. Nobody's going to be able to do that. It's all by grace. The Bible's crystal clear. And so the denarius in our parable represents the rewards that the believer will receive in heaven. It's about service, not salvation. But secondly, this parable is not about the kinds of rewards that we'll receive for service. If the denarius here stands for the kinds of rewards we'll get, then God is not fair. Why? Because every worker got the same reward. And the scriptures clearly point out, that they're crystal clear, about the fact that God will reward us differently according to our service. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.8 tells us, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The point of the parable is not to show the kinds of rewards we're going to get, but that God will reward those who are willing to serve, whether you come to Christ early on or later on in life. By way of application, seven really quick takeaways from our passage here this morning. As those who have chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, how is God going to reward us? First of all, we're reminded here that Christ has called all of us, every single one of us, to labor for him. As the landowner, he is calling you and I to work in the vineyard. That's everybody. And it's really too bad that as Christians, like the laborers here in the parable, there are some who just seem to sort of just stand by idly all the time when there's so much to do in the work of ministry. Why is it that we hear on the average, the typical church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work? Why is that? Why do 20% of the people support 80% of the budget? Why is that? And yet Christ has called every one of us to labor for him in the field, everyone. Over in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus told his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. There is so much to do. But the laborers are few. What are we supposed to do? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. Listen, <laughs> as we grow and as we expand our ministry here at Foothills Church, I would really cover your prayers that God would raise up more and more leaders, more laborers. There is so much to do in the Lord's work. And we ought to do it, we have to do it, out of a heart of love. Christ has called all of us, every single one of us, to labor for him in some area of, of ministry, some area of the Lord's work. A second principle concerning rewards is the fact that God is going to be absolutely fair to those who serve him. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, wait a minute, I got ripped off. Um, It'll be absolutely fair. Uh, Psalm 19.9 declares, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 89.14 proclaims, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. One of the great attributes of God is the fact that he is fair. He may not seem fair, but he is. He is absolutely just. And I can rest, and we can rest in that wonderful truth. A third principle here concerning rewards is the fact that God is sovereign in the distribution of rewards. God has the right to do whatever he pleases with his servants. And so like the landowner here in the parable, God says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own? Absolutely. He's God. He's the king of the universe. We're not. He alone determines who gets what. As Psalm 135, 6 declares, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. 
whatever, in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 47, 6 proclaims, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. As our God, we can rest in His sovereign control. Praise the Lord for that. Fourth principle from this passage, from this parable, is the fact that rewards will be, surprisingly for some, unexpected. You know, there may be some dear little old lady, <laughs> dear little, little old grandma, who's been praying for her unsaved grandkids every day, her whole life, praying for them. She may get as big of a reward as Billy Graham. Why? Because of, uh, one of the principles of divine uh, rewards is that of proportionate responsibility. In other words, as Jesus once pointed out, from, from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. It follows in that those who have been given little, less is going to be required of them. And so that dear little grandmother who used what few opportunities she had to the max by praying every day and being diligent and faithful in that, she may get more rewards than the person who was given more, but didn't do a whole lot with it. Levels of reward will vary according to opportunity and ability that God has given to you. In other words, it's not the dealt cards, it's how you play the cards you're dealt. <laughs> and so rewards for some will be surprisingly unexpected. You know, that might, might apply to salvation as well. J. Vernon McGee once said, when we get to heaven someday, there's going to be three surprises, he thinks. The first surprise is, he says, I will see people there that I never expected to see. You made it. That'll be a surprise. Surprise number one. The second surprise will be a number of people I expected to see, but aren't there. Then he said, the greatest and maybe the biggest surprise of all may be that I will be there. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. The joy of our salvation and the, and the blessings of our rewards will be surprisingly unexpected. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Praise God for that. A fifth principle concerning rewards is the fact that quality and motive, not duration of service, is the determining factor. What's the motive? Our parable shows that God chooses to give out rewards not based upon how long you've served him, but primarily what has been your motive. I've had the privilege of serving here at Foothills for 25 years. I've got pastor friends that go, why would you be in a church for so long? Because I love this church. It's my family. Most pastors are three to five years. 25 years is un unusual. And I say, well, I got a gracious church that hasn't kicked me out yet, so praise God for that. But when I get to heaven someday, I'm not going to get a gold watch. God's not going to say, great job, Brad. You served 25 years at Foothills. You were 10 years at two other churches back in the day. Uh, here's a gold watch. He's not going to. He's going to judge me, as far as rewards are concerned, based upon my motive. Why did I do what I did? Did I have a motivation of love and loyalty to the Lord? Or was I serving myself? That will be the key determining factor when we stand before God someday. 1 Corinthians 3.12 says this, Now if any man builds upon the foundation... With gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as though uh, through fire. So what's the difference? 
What's the difference between our, our works of gold, silver, and precious stones and our works of wood, hay, and straw? It all boils down to our motives. Why do we do what we do? Are we truly serving him out of a motivation of love and loyalty? Jesus tells us that if we have the wrong motive, it is sin and we will be robbed of our rewards. Verse 15 says, Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first and the first last. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, The right work done with the wrong motive dishonors God and robs us of the blessing. Do we have the right motive of love and loyalty to the giver, not the gifts? Sixth principle here in our passage is the fact that we should pay attention to our own affairs and leave the rewards to God. I think one of the major points of this parable this morning is that God's grace and God's generosity knows no bounds. And man's idea of merit and, 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 and earned rewards really is irrelevant. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees, not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. What's your motivation? Do you love Jesus? It's sobering to realize that that the Christians that we admire today might be last in that final reckoning before the Lord because their motives are wrong. We think, oh, they're going to be number one when we get to heaven. Maybe they won't be. Now, we can't judge the motives of others, but we can judge our own motives. May we do all for the glory of God because we love Him. A final principle here this morning, really quickly, is the fact that everyone who works gets paid. Everybody, all, receive rewards. And what's amazing is this. The Apostle Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? The implication is, what do you have that God didn't already give you in the first place? Nothing. We have nothing without what he already gave us. And yet we choose to take that and offer it back to him in service and in giving. Grace has been uh, defined as unmerited favor. And that grace goes really beyond our understanding. One author offers a great illustration. He says this, In the spring of 2002, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in a ministry class at a Bible college I was attending. When I got to class, everybody was doing their last-minute study, and this is going to be a hard exam. The teacher came in and told us he would review with us before the big test. Most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I had never heard when questioned about it, he said they were in the book and that we were responsible for everything in the book. We couldn't argue with that. Finally, it was time to take the test. Leave them face down on the desk until everyone has one, and I'll tell you when to start, said the professor. When we turned them over, to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. At the bottom of the last page were these words. This is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on this final exam. And the reason you passed the test is because the creator of this test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get an A. You have just experienced grace. The professor then went around the room. He asked each student individually, what is your grade? Did you, did you deserve the grade that you are receiving? How much did all your studying for this exam help you to achieve the final grade? And then he said this. Some things you learn from lectures. Some things you learn from research. Some things you learn only from experience. And you've just experienced 
grace. 100 years from now, he said, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name will be written down in a book, and you will have had nothing to do with it being written there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. For my parable this morning, why did the landowner give so much to those who had not worked for it? Because of grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the very nature of God who, define, who is defined as love to pour out his love upon people in a way and in a, in a measure that is both undeserved and unexpected. Praise the Lord for that. And our parable here helps us to see that the offense of grace is removed when we see the heart of the landowner, when we see the heart of God. God's grace is given on the basis of his overflowing love out of a free and generous heart, the heart of God. So we may, you know, may we continue to, to, to work in his vineyard, to be diligent, to be faithful, working in his vineyard with a motivation of pure love and loyalty to our Savior, with a wonderful realization that someday we're going to get more than we could possibly imagine, more than we could possibly expect, more than we could ever deserve. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this promise. Thank you, Lord, for just... Uh, the relationship that we have with you, that it's not based upon our works. It's not based upon trying to earn our salvation. But Father, you do reward us for being faithful, for being diligent in the use of our time, our talents, and our treasure. And so Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to let go of those things that trip us up, the stuff in our lives, the materialism, maybe even the relationships that, that are out of proportion. And Father, help us to, to, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, Lord, to grow in you, to be all that you've called us to be, to do all that you've called us to do. Help us to be faithful with the gifts, the, the abilities, the talents that you've given each and every one of us. Help us to, Father, work the vineyard in the short time that we have. Help us not to buy into the lie that, yeah, I'll do it someday, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it when I get older. But Father, help us to be faithful today as you have called us to serve. Father, we thank you, we praise you for the gracious and, and, and how good you really are. You have poured out your blessings materially and spiritually and in so many ways you've anointed us, filled us with your spirit, apart from whom we can do nothing. And so Father, I pray that you would fill us, use us, motivate us, stir our hearts. Help us, Father, to take all the things in our heart and life and hold them up to you with an open hand, free for you to take, whenever and whatever you want to take, because it's all yours. You are our King, you are our Lord, you are our friend, you are our Savior. And Father, we lift up our hearts. We pray that you'd help us to go from this place more in love with you, more committed to following hard after you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a citizen of your kingdom. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name and all for your glory and all God's people said, amen.